get going here. We'll start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of this day. We ask your blessings on this time together. And Father, we just pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be acceptable and pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. So how did you like Romans 9? It was just fun, wasn't it? So we're going to start this morning with the same quote that was at the beginning of your lesson. I think it's on page 86, maybe? And this is a quote from Chuck Swindoll, and he is writing about what the ninth chapter of Romans is all about. And he said this, Make no mistake, Paul's letter to the Romans is not about our salvation. His primary subject is the righteousness of God, of which our salvation is a part. The Lord is pursuing his own agenda. Remember, it is to remove death from the throne of creation and give it to his Son, so that the righteousness of God will rule all things. And he will do this whether anyone decides to join him or not. Now, I'm starting with that this morning because I want you to notice just a couple key things that Chuck Swindoll says right here. First of all, he says that the primary subject of Romans is God's righteousness, which is absolutely true. And we've been talking a lot about our sin and our salvation. But in reality, we don't have salvation and we can't identify our sin outside of the righteousness of God. And I would add to Chuck's comment here that the other major theme, especially in the next few chapters, in addition to God's righteousness, is his sovereignty. And then Chuck says in that third sentence that the Lord is pursuing his agenda. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. God working out the plan that he had in mind for the Jewish people and for the way that the Messiah would come through that lineage and eventually be the one who would redeem us as well as the believers in the nation of Israel. Now, I want us to focus on a little theme here this morning, and that is to go back to the map. And what I mean by that is what we're doing today is we are tracing back through the Old Testament God's plan. It's like we're going to look back over the series of events, the steps that he put into place, kind of like reading a map as we look at this today. And I had a funny conversation <clears throat> a few weeks ago with my youngest son, who is in his 20s. And um, he has a job where he has to... Um, He's the director of marketing and sales. So his time is out on the road. Spends a lot of time driving around Charlotte in immediate areas calling on um, people for the business that he works for. And so remember that first snow that we had that had all the ice and all of that? Okay, so he was, for a couple of days, he couldn't go out and call on anybody because all their offices were closed. Finally, when they opened up, he called me one morning and he said, Mom, I, I'm in a fix. I, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, for some reason, my phone is not working correctly, and I can't get my GPS to come up on my phone, which, of course, as you can imagine, he relies on all day long to take him from one place to the next. Okay, so <laughs> I said to him, 
naive me, I said, well, you know, you could just run over to like a Barnes and Noble or somewhere and get a map. And he said, what? And I said, well, you know, you can get a map and figure out the places you have to go to, and then you can just jot some notes down about, you know, you'll, I mean, you know Charlotte well enough, you'll know generally where you're going, and then just make a couple notes about where you're turning to get to this particular office. And he goes, well, if I get a map, how will I, I mean, there's so many streets in Charlotte, how will I find the street on the map? And I said, well, honey, there's an index on the map that lists the streets alphabetically, and then it gives you two points of reference, and you match those up horizontally and vertically, and you know where the street is. And he goes, really? And I said, yes, and he goes, well, then, but he said, if I do that, he goes, then how, how am I going to read that map while I'm trying to drive the car? And I said, well, that's why I'm saying to you, look it up, you know, take a few, sit in the parking lot, look up your places, jot down a few things so that all you have to do is glance at one slip of paper and you'll know where you're going. He, he said, this is too much work. And I said, well, honey, how do you think people used to get around before there was GPS? And, he go, and he, at the end of the conversation was, he goes, Mom, you're really old. And I said, well, I might be really old, but the truth is that when something like your phone is not working, there is another way to get this done. And the way to do that is to go back to something that worked all along. And we trusted maps. Remember when we read maps? Okay. We trusted maps just like we trust the GPSs in our car because we know that someone has spent a great deal of time putting it all together for us. Well, this morning, we're going to trust the map that God laid out over generations and generations through his chosen people to eventually bring us the Messiah. And as we do this, I want you to be thinking about a couple of things. First of all, when we journey back like this and look at this plan and the way it emerged, we can see there were no accidents along the way here. It was all very intentional. And we can trust that God knew exactly what he was doing as he put this together. And before we start, I want you to think about this as well. This is the background and the foundation of our faith. And then final, so how important is it for us to know that? if this is the background and the foundation of our faith. And then finally, be thinking about this this morning. You know, God has revealed through his word, he has done the best job possible of revealing himself to mankind, revealing himself in a way that we as humans can understand. But even having said that, do any of us fully understand the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence, the all-powerfulness of God, his omniscience, his all-knowing, or his sovereignty? Hardly. So I mention that to say this. We're going to get to the end of chapter 9, and you're going to feel like when you leave today, like, well, I understand this a whole lot better than I did before. 
but will there still be things that are a bit of a mystery to you? Probably so. And that's okay, because God is God and we are not. And so in his power, in his all-knowing, there will always be things about him that our human minds cannot fully embrace. So here's what we're going to see this morning. We're going to see God's promises to the Jews. We're going to see the consequences of their unbelief. We're going to see the plan that God had to factor the Gentiles in. And then we're going to see how his sovereignty and his righteousness guided all of this. God's sovereignty has been in place since the very beginning. He sees everything differently than we do. We are constrained by seeing life in a linear way. We think chronologically. Well, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. God is able to see everything, past, present, future, all at the same moment in time. So he has a very different perspective on how all of these events in chapter 9 come together. Nothing here was a surprise to him. He didn't second guess any of this, and his will prevailed through all of it. So let's get started. So the first five verses of Romans 9, um, we see the despair that Paul has over the nation of Israel right now. And let me read those verses, and I'm going to be reading this morning from the ESV. <clears throat> Paul writes this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul is writing to Jews and Gentiles who are meeting in small churches in Rome. This context is really important because remember how we have talked in prior weeks about the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles are both trying to figure out at this point, those who are believers, they're trying to figure out exactly how their relationship with God works now that they are sure that Jesus is the Messiah and they are also trying to understand their relationship to each other. And Paul is reminding them in these few verses also of the personal commitment that he has, especially to the Jews. He is reminding the Jews, I am one of you, and I care for you so deeply. There is nothing I desire for you more than that you would come to know Jesus as Messiah. And his despair is deep. You can hear it in his words. He goes as far as to say, I would give up my own salvation if it meant that my fellow Jewish brothers would come to know Jesus. And that's a bold statement. That's a very self-sacrificing statement. 
But even though it does such a good job of expressing his grief at this moment, the truth is the Messiah has already done what Paul is saying he wants to do. Jesus has already come. He has given himself. He has taken their place. They just haven't believed it. This is kind of like when you're driving down the road and you know where you're going and somebody is following you, a friend or a relative, and they don't know as well where they're going. So you say, follow me, and you know we'll both get there. And so you're driving along, and have you ever had the experience where you're driving, and you come to an intersection, and you go one way, and the person who's following you does not follow you. They turn another direction or go straight or, or do something different. And you have that little clench kind of, in your stomach of, uh-oh, you know, how do I get them back on the right trail? Do they even know they're going the wrong way, right? Well, it's the same concept here on a much deeper level that Paul is experiencing and probably that every one of us experiences with certain people in our lives that we know do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want them to know the right way to go. We don't want them to turn off the path and go a different direction. We want them to choose the way to Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, my longing is so great. And he reminds them, the nation of Israel had all these blessings. You received all these things, yet you cannot see the final culmination of all of this. You cannot see that Jesus is your Messiah. So Paul's looking back now at God's map when we get into verse 6, and he describes God's choices of choosing Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. And this is the family, the nation, the generations through whom God says, I will bless this nation. I will make them a light to the world. And through their physical lineage, I will bring them the Messiah, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. This one nation was the key part of God's plan to deal with evil and sin. Now, know this, they were not chosen for their goodness. If we tried to figure out exactly why God chose the nation of Israel and formed a people from Abraham exactly as he did, we might not get all of that. They weren't good. They weren't better than other nations. Actually, they were part of the whole problem that was going on. They were sinful, just like everyone else around them. But the truth is, God chose them. He decided they would be the nation through whom he would accomplish this goal. They needed to remain close to him. They needed the grace of God just as much as every other nation in the world. They were no different in that regard. So Paul goes through this, and if you'll remember from when you were doing your lesson, I don't want to take time to read all these verses this morning or we won't get through everything we're trying to get through. So I'm going to ask you to do a little recall here for a minute. If you'll remember, he talks about Abraham and then Isaac 
and then Jacob and Esau. And he talks about how God chose a path through these patriarchs. And then he goes on and he talks about how he chose Moses to deliver the people from Pharaoh. Well, let's think through all of this for just a minute. He quotes Genesis 18 and Malachi 1 when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, that is the first of two or three statements in Romans 9 that are a little bit difficult for us because we're thinking, Jacob he loved and Esau he hated? And then he goes on, and as he's referring to Moses and Pharaoh, he reminds, Paul reminds everyone that what God had said to Moses was, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So he is contrasting the hardness of Pharaoh and the faithfulness of Moses. Now, here's the point Paul is making. God is in control of all of these events, the events of the entire universe. He controls what exists, he directs the course of those things, and he uses men and women to accomplish his purpose. He uses all believers to accomplish his purpose. But at specific times and places, he uses exact individuals to do what needs to be done. So we get into this issue in these verses of God deciding to use one and not another. This begins with this comment about Jacob and Esau. And so let's define what this word hated means. It is the same word that is used in Luke 14, 26. Jot that down if you want to, if you want to go back and look at that later. It is the same word that Jesus used when he was talking to his followers and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, did Jesus really mean that he wanted us as believers to hate our families? That he wanted us to hate our own lives so much that they would be despicable to us? Because that's what we think of when we hear the word hated. No, that's not what he meant. He is not saying, I want you to be bitter and angry towards your family. The word is more of a comparative word. What he's saying is, I want my disciples to be so committed to me, to love me so deeply that in comparison, it almost looks like they are rejecting their families. That's how different the strength of the relationship is. It is the same idea with Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob even before his birth as the one through whom the lineage of Christ would, coming, would be coming. This is a point of comparison. Basically what he's saying is, I chose Jacob, I didn't choose Esau. In verses 14 to 18, oh wait, one more point on that before we go on. Similarly, when he refers to Moses and Pharaoh, and he uses this expression, I'll have mercy on who I have mercy, 
I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And of course, what we know is the antithesis of that must mean I won't have mercy on someone that I don't want to have mercy on. But here's what we need to know about that. When the phrase is mentioned about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, it isn't as though God sets out to harden anyone's heart. In every example of that in Scripture, where that kind of phrase is used, what God is doing is he is simply allowing a person who is already hardened toward him, who has already rejected him, who has already said, I don't want anything to do with this. God is giving them over to that choice that they are making. So this is not God's initial choice for them to be hardened. This is the individual's initial choice. And in verses 14 to 18, Paul assures us that this is not the injustice of God, but rather in his all-knowing, in his plan, in this map that he started from the very beginning, he knew that he would use Moses, Jacob, even Pharaoh, to accomplish the purpose that he had for mankind. Now, this leads us to the verses that bring up another question for us. And Paul acknowledges, here's the next question. So if all of this is true, then what does it really mean when God elects, predestines, chooses? And he says in, well, let me start a little bit before this. Okay, let's go back to verse 14 for a minute. And Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, here Paul is recognizing the questions that are in the believers in Rome and that are in us. In verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then he goes on with the illustration of the potter. Now, Paul is acknowledging that this brings up questions. Do I have a choice? Does God allow me to decide whether I believe in him? Does he direct my life so specifically that there's nothing else going on that I have any control over? This gets us into a little bit of a sticky wicket, these verses. But here's the reality of what Paul is saying. First of all, Remember the point that Lisa made last week when she clarified that in these chapters, a great deal of what Paul is talking about is that God is choosing a nation. He is choosing a lineage of people and using certain individuals within that lineage to bring about the overall plan that he had for Israel, for the Gentiles, 
and for everyone's salvation through Jesus Christ. He is bringing his initiative to be. That's essentially what these verses are saying. And although Israel was the chosen nation, it was not a guarantee that they would all know and understand the Messiah. There were still so many Jews who didn't believe. They had substituted obedience to the law that we have talked about so many times. They had substituted rule following for true faith in Jesus Christ. But there was always the faithful remnant within the Jewish nation that God continued to work through to bring the Messiah. Now, so how does this idea of election and being chosen apply to us today? Here we go. First of all, the best thing for us to do when we are in Scripture like this is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay? So we take what we're reading today, and then we go back, and we say, what do other places in the New Testament and the Old say about this same thing? I want to give you just a few. First of all, what do we all know that John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that some people? No. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter wrote, God is patient with his promises. He does not want any to be destroyed, but all to come to repentance. It's the same idea that is a little bit further in this example of the pottery, where it talks about God's patience with even the vessels who were headed toward destruction. He's still hoping they're going to turn around. I want to show you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who was a 19th century preacher and writer, because I think this helps us to clear this up a good bit. He wrote, Many people want to know their election before they look to Christ, but they cannot learn it thus. It is only to be discovered by looking unto Jesus. Look to Jesus, believe on him, and you shall make proof of your election directly. For as sure as you believe, you are elect. In other words, as sure as you believe, you are chosen. If you will give yourself wholly up to Christ and trust him, then you are one of God's chosen ones. Go to Jesus just as you are. Go straight to Christ. Hide in his wounds, and you shall know your election. Go and put your trust in him. There will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. It all relates back to what we've been talking about over the past weeks of we come to Jesus in this first step of belief and faith, and then through God's ordained plan, it all begins to come together for each of us. We are chosen. Spurgeon is also the one, you may remember that a few weeks ago, Chris Payne quoted him on a Sunday morning Spurgeon is also the one who has said, and this is a, a wonderful little visual picture, that when we get to the gates of heaven, that on the outside of the gate it will read, whoever believes may come, and on the inside of the gate when we turn back around it will say, 
I chose you before the foundation of the world. That is part of the all-knowing, all-loving mystery of God. Now, just a few minutes on the potter and the clay. First of all, this refers back to two examples given in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 29 and Jeremiah 18. Both of those prophecies, both of those scripture passages, were referring to Israel as a nation, and a nation that would not allow itself to be molded to the truth. And the point of the example in Jeremiah and Isaiah from the Lord as he was speaking through those prophets was, listen, I'm the potter. You are my people. Let me mold you into the best that you can be. And when we bring this down to the levels that it applies in Romans 9, it applies as God was trying to shape the Jews to be his chosen people, It applies, as he called the Gentiles, and privileged them to be full and equal children of Abraham through their faith in Jesus. And it applies for every one of us, every person, regardless of ethnicity, race, color, family, anything you want to name. God shapes us to be the vessel that he determines we should be. Does he take all our choices away from us in that process? No, he doesn't, just as he didn't take them all away from Israel. Israel made decisions to sin. Other members of the Jewish community made decisions to believe. When we believe, we open our lives to the fulfillment of his plan. When we sin, we own that choice. But we already have a Savior who redeems us and continues to clothe us in his righteousness. So consider this as you think about the potter, one last thought. The created cannot instruct the creator. That's what Paul means when he says, can the, can the pot talk back to the potter and say, no, I don't want to be this. I don't want to be this little bucket over here. I want to be something beautiful. No, the potter decides. So the question then is, for each of us as the pot, whether you view yourself as a beautiful vase or the simplest of cooking pots, is will you let God be the God of your life? Will you give in to the purposes and the design that he has planned for you? Will you believe that in his sovereignty and righteousness He knows what is best about where he's put you, where you live, the people he puts in your path. Now, let's wrap this up. When we go on into chapters 10 and 11 in the next few weeks, we're going to learn a great deal more about Israel's faithful remnant and about the grafting in of the Gentiles. And in the last few verses right here of chapter 9, Paul quotes two passages from Hosea and Isaiah, and he does that for one very important reason. Both of those passages are prophecies about what would come true in the Messiah and about God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel and to Gentiles and all who would believe. 
So Paul's last point right here before he heads in to another idea is God has been faithful to all of you. I have given, he is saying, the greatest of gifts to the nation of Israel, and now I give that gift as well to all the Gentiles. The Jews, unfortunately, many of them have stumbled over that stone. That stone that is referred to in those final verses is the Lord Jesus Christ. And many of them stumbled over it. They couldn't see it. They couldn't accept it. But he goes on to say, those who do not stumble, those who believe, will not be put to shame. We have the benefit today of being able to look back on history. We have the benefit of being able to go back through all of this scripture. And even just to have been through the first eight chapters of Romans... And in that benefit, we can understand this plan more clearly than others who came before us thousands of years ago. But here's the most important thing. When we think about that plan and the advantage that all of this gives us, we are able to reach all the way back in our understanding. We are able to go back to the original map and say, here's what this was all about. And in understanding what it was all about, we are able to see forward to how it relates to our faith today. Let me pray for us before we go to our groups. Father, we, um, we thank you for challenging parts of your word. We pray, Father, that you will help us in our weaknesses to understand more clearly, to see your design, your sovereignty, your righteousness. And Lord, more than anything, we thank you that through all of that, you loved us unconditionally, and your plan was that each of us would come to know you. And so we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that he is our Messiah, and that through his forgiveness and his sacrifice, we wear your righteousness. Help us in our groups today, Lord. Make your word clear. May everything that we say be honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.